You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Well, as Alyssa said, uh, if you're new, you're joining us in a series in Acts we are going through called Movement. And the reason we're going through it is Acts is really about the movement of God uh, in the early stages of the church. And we, being a young church, uh, wanting to be a movement of the gospel, think we can learn a lot uh, from what God did and is doing, or was doing in the book of Acts and is doing in our church. And um, we're kind of rounding third base in Acts. We're like, we're almost to, verse, uh, to chapter 20. We got chapter 28 is the, uh, the finish line. So we're, uh, we're getting, getting towards the end here. And... Um, Our text this week is putting us back in Ephesus, back in this city uh, that has a lot to be impressed by back in the ancient day. Uh, You had the temple devoted to Artemis, or or Diana, I think is what the Romans would call her, which was, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world where people would come far and wide to to worship this goddess of fertility. Um, You had this famous sports stadium. The ruins are still there. It killed 24,000 people. That was a lot back then. It was the uh, famed Ephesus egrets that would play there every year. I'm totally kidding. That's, uh, that's not a th- I don't think that's a thing. I just guessed at what they would call their sports team. Uh, you had a huge booming economy in Ephesus. You had all these people coming for sports, for worship, for trade. So you had like the Wall Street of the ancient world in Ephesus's world as well. So you got legendary buildings. You got an uh, exciting sports scene. Uh, you got a booming economy. This place was impressive. And what we learned last week is in comes a traveling, humble Jewish preacher named Paul. And two years before the story you just heard read, he just simply went to places where people would gather, open up his Bible, and just really proclaim a pretty um, simple message. Um, Maybe like the one that he wrote the Ephesian uh, church later that would say something like a message like, you're dead in your sin, but God actually came in and became a man and actually died for your sins so you can have life in him forever. And after preaching that message for two years, uh, you get this. You get riots and disarray and uh, no little disturbance. That's sarcasm if you're wondering. That means it was a big, huge disturbance um, is what that really means. And uh, I cannot read this story without thinking about a, a riot that I observed. Um, I, I don't know if you, if you guys, anybody ever been around or in a riot? There have been some riots, uh, you know, maybe in Baltimore or other places, but I was uh, observed one, but was kind of a part of one uh, back in college. Um, this is my pre-Jesus days. I'll tell you a pre-Jesus story uh, from, from Adam. But um, So I went to Virginia Tech. I was a Hokie. Uh, football's huge there, like a lot of big schools. And um, we were number three in the nation. I was a freshman, uh, so picture it, freshman Adam, Virginia Tech, big football, brilliant football, number three. People are talking about national championships. We've never gotten one before. Everyone was very excited. And um, we lost. And uh, we were supposed to win, and we lost this nail-biting game Thursday night in Blacksburg. And it's, it's not just that people were a, a little sad or a little disappointed. People were enraged. Uh, people were incensed, and, uh, and I was too. I, I remember walking back to my dorm, and people were throwing furniture out of dorm windows. I'm not kidding. People were lighting things on fire, 
tens of thousands of students were taking to the streets to riot because everyone was so freaking mad. And I, to be honest, um, I was too. I was a part of it. I was not an innocent bystander. I don't think I threw any furniture out the window or lit anything on fire, but I was, I was incensed. I was angry. I had this rage that I could not explain. And in the morning, I was so, um, I, was, I was asking the question in the morning, how does something so relatively trivial, something so temporary, something that I cannot even control, like a football game, have such power to make me enraged and make me do crazy things and make tens of thousands of people do crazy stuff. And in this passage, you could ask the same question. Why were tens of thousands of people in Ephesus enraged at this simple message and the effects of it? And both of these questions have actually the same answer for me and for these Ephesian um, tradesmen. It's idolatry. This passage is all about idolatry. And I know you may think, man, you really dusted off the dictionary. That's an old word right there. Um, I, we don't use that. That may sound like that's not really relevant topic for today, but I want to show you actually in the text that idolatry is one of the most relevant things in your life right now. If satisfaction in life seems elusive to you, uh, you probably have an idol issue. If you're in constant anxiety today, you probably have an idol issue. If you have been finding yourself perpetually angry, disappointed, hopeless, discontent, you probably are struggling with an idol issue. And the truths of this text, really the truths of the gospel, have the power today to free you from the power of idols in your life. So by God's grace, I really just want to focus in on this a little bit more topical um, study on this passage on idols, idolization. And by God's grace, really want to convince you of these three points. You can tell me if I've convinced you at the end, but um, number one, uh, most fun point, you are an idolater. I want to convince you of that. And I want to show you the cost of idols, and I want to show you how to kill idols. By God's grace, I think the text will show us that. So let's start off with number one, the most fun one, my favorite, you are an idolater. I am too, by the way. Um, And so you might think, what kind of relevance does idol do idols have in secular Baltimore 2022? I think the images that probably jumped right into your mind and mine as well is uh, ancient people, unsophisticated people bowing down to statues. Um, That doesn't happen today, right? Unless uh, I actually got a picture of my daughter from uh, City Kids last month where they were talking about um, idol worship, not teaching it, teaching against it. And my, sis, my, uh, my daughter thought it would be fun to lead others to go start bowing down to a stuffed duck uh, in city kids. And so uh, I think she was lovingly uh, rebuked, I think. And so your kids are good if you're, if you're wondering about city kids ministry. Um, right, Josh? We're good. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, you think, hey, idolatry is in the past. It's for less sophisticated, less educated people. There are no idols here. We're a secular society. We're not a polytheistic culture, or I'm a Christian. I don't struggle with idols. Even the dictionary definition says someone, an idolater, is someone who worships and prays to an object or a picture as part of a religion. So you might say, Adam, uh, I have not bowed down to a statue. I have not bowed down to like a hair doll that I made this week. So I am not an idolater. You're wrong. And I want to tell you that, uh, I want to show you, actually, the Bible defines idolatry differently. And uh, let's look, just real quick, I want to look at what it means to be an idolater um, in the Bible. So first, it's an acknowledgement that you and everyone else in the world is a worshiper. 
You are a worshiper. Every person is created to root and plant their identity, their worth, and their purpose in something. Something to give value to your existence. And it's not just actually the Bible that teaches this. I think other non-Christians have observed this reality as well. There's a famous author who since passed. His name's David Foster Wallace. And he gave a commencement speech in 2005. And he said this, affirming what I'm talking about. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So he's saying every person orients their life around some central object of worship. You'll sacrifice to it, you'll think about it, and you'll give your treasure to it. Tim Keller says, we idolize when we look to something created to give us meaning and hope and happiness that only God can give himself. And I love what um, John Calvin, he's a reformer, he said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories, just churning out things to idolize, things to make central to our life, out of all kinds of things. Really, creating an idol is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. You could be an atheist here, you could be a non-Christian, you could be a Christian, you could be a child, you could be an adult, a student, you could be a, what we call a seasoned saint uh, in the room, and you struggle with this. You, are, you struggle, we all do this. If there's anything more foundational, anything more than God that's functionally attributing more to your happiness, your identity, your hope, and your meaning, that is functionally your God. Idolatry can sound something like this. Yeah, I'm a Christian, and um, yeah, I go to, go to gospel community, I go to church sometimes. But you know what really, what I really dream about, what really gets me, consumes me all the time is if I could just have this thing, then I would be happy. If I could have this person, then I would be content. So, so I want to unpack the passage to see what kind of idols we're coming across. And I think you're going to relate to them uh, more than you would like. <laughs> for, so for two years, Paul's preaching in this impressive city. He's in this angsty silversmith, Demetrius. He shares how he interprets Paul's message to be. He says this, Paul's persuaded and turned away many people. This is the message that he is interpreting Paul to be preaching. Saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So most commentators think this guy has not actually heard Paul's preaching. He's just hearing what other people are saying he is preaching. And this message is spreading everywhere. He's he's preaching, turn away from idols and turn to Jesus. And with the gospel spreading, lives, cities, cultures, all all of Ephesus is changing. Uh, Why? Because Christians were not just saying, oh, being a Christian is checking Christian on your dating app or uh, going to church a couple times a month, but a wave of radical change was, cha- was happening as people were turning from idols, turning to Jesus. And Demetrius is ticked. It says he causes no little disturbance. This is an understatement. He gathers together this workers' union of kind of idol workers, and this is what he says. I'm going to read just his verses uh, 25 and 27. We already read 26. Don't get in the habit of skipping verses, though. That's, I'm not trying to model that for you. Uh, We're going to do 25, 27. He says this to his crew. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed of her own magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And uh, look at the result of this speech. Verse 28, they were enraged. In the original language, full of fury, they were incensed. You know a great way to figure out if you have an idol you're struggling with or someone else in your life does? It's whatever makes you disproportionately angry. It's when you blow up at your kid for when they accidentally just spill something. It's when you're fuming mad because your boss forgot to give you credit for your work. Or it's when you go into this downward spiral because you can't seem to get enough approval from your parents. And that's what's happening to these Ephesian guys. They are... Their idols are being threatened. They're under attack. And I wonder if you saw the idols as we read through the passage. Uh, Their biggest idol is not an Artemis statue. It's money. It's wealth. He says, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He says, every person that follows Jesus, uh, every person that follows Jesus in Ephesus is actually one less statue for them to make. It's dollars out of their bank account. And their bank accounts are getting lighter, and they can't stand it. Another idol you see is career and reputation. He says, uh, there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. Guys, our career's on the line. People may not acknowledge our business anymore. Um, another one they have here is patriotism. Uh, you heard in the text that Alyssa read earlier, they started chanting for two hours this patriotic chant, drowning everyone else out. And another idol we see is fame. They love, man, they're enraged because they're uh, threatened. Their fame, their world-renownedness of Ephesus is being threatened. So you got money, you got career, you got reputation, you got patriotism, fame. You guys think you're ever tempted to make one of those things the ultimate thing in your life? Yes. The answer is yes. Sorry, I covered my mic. Yeah. The answer is Yes. I want to just spend a little bit more time on that first one, though, because the first and primary idol for these craftsmen is, I think, the idol that is often first and primary in our culture, in our church culture, is money, wealth. Idolizing money, idolizing career says, yes, I, I, man, I, I love God, um, I love his people, but if I can't have a beefy bank account, if I can't, um, if I can't own a home, if I can't have an upwardly mobile uh, career, if I can't vacation where I want, then I'm nothing. I can't be secure, I I can't be happy, I can't have status, I can't be content. And you will sacrifice anything and everything to worship, to pursue this idol. Lots of people will sacrifice their children. Countless children are sacrificed on the worship of money and wealth and career all the time. Parents who are meant to sacrifice their, their best for their kids, end up giving them the scraps because they're giving their best to their career and their wealth. And for many of you, instead of your parents' best, you received empty dinner tables, uh, empty seats at the sports games, or a lack of presence and attention. You'll sacrifice your community for money. The people God's placed in your life to be his loving presence and direction and blessing um, will be subservient to your greed. So, man, uh, boss says, hey, you need to work on Sundays. Hey, no problem. Anything for the boss, anything for the job. 
hey, you need to move across the country for a job, not even a thought would come into my mind about reconsidering or bringing that to my community. If it serves the career, if it serves the money, then done. And lastly, you'll sacrifice your generosity. You'll only be generous after you've obtained the savings and kind of the, the, the money check boxes that you have. Uh, you'll give a gift once in a while because um, that nagging Christian conscience that tells you you're supposed to give every once in a while will, will make you give a gift. But, but it's not really generous. It's not sacrificial. It's not stretching. It's, it's um, just to kind of quiet your conscience. And um, can I, let me hold on this for, for a little bit longer. Uh, can I maybe make you guys a little bit more uncomfortable if I can try? Um, because I love you, um, because I think this is, this is really common in the church in America, but really common in our church, that God is really giving you an invitation if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, to invest sacrificially in his mission, to, uh, to, to give to his most prized possession, the church, but many who are Christians are giving their leftovers from their idol worship or nothing. And you know how the Bible labels this? It labels it as uh, greed. That's what the love of money is, greed. Uh, and, and Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, put to death, Christian, greed, which is idolatry. So he's saying greed is idolatry. It's because you're loving something else more than God. Money has become your ultimate thing. And even now, uh, as I talk about money or maybe talk about not giving, some of you are getting very antsy. You feel this voice inside of you saying, that's, my, that's mine, or, or you have no right to talk about money, right? That's mine. No one else can have a say into my money. Or you might say, my precious, and hold it very tight. Your inner golem might come out, right? Guys, I'm not pressing here because we need your money. We don't. I'm pressing here because this is, an, this is a way for you to see that your heart is not ultimately given over to Jesus first in some ways. We don't want your money. We want your heart sold out for Jesus. That's what we want. The American church is full of, I think, millions who bow down to the idol of money. And it's not just money. We can idolize anything. We can idolize uh, and give our best to our reputation, our romantic relationship, our family uh, our moral record, our social cause, our parents' approval, all those things, about anything, we can make into an idol. And our culture, lastly, I just want to finish on this, our culture celebrates and encourages idol-making and idol-worship. What do I mean by that? A, a lot of sociologists are calling the undercurrent of Western culture now, they, they use a term to describe it called expressive individualism. And a lot of people are writing about this now. But basically what this is, it's saying for you to find identity, for you to find true happiness, what you need to do is block out and plug your ears to everything outside of you. Any institution, any church, uh, any family member, any tradition, any history, plug your ears, block those out, and go inside of yourself. Find your deepest desires, your deepest longings, and make those things, plant your identity Plant your flag of purpose and identity and make that your God. So make sexuality, pleasure, your own happiness, your own career, whatever it could be, that will be your God. And no one has the, has the right to tell you otherwise. It's self-made idol worship. And our culture loves encouraging it. So we're swimming in a culture of encouraging idol worship. 
What do you think? Did I convince you? You're idolaters? I'm an idolater? Anybody convinced? I'm convinced. Uh, number two, I want to show you the deceit of idols. The deceit of idols. Let me start with this. There's this warning that Psalm 16 gives us about idol worship. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. I really want to show you in this point that running after idols is foolish. It will only hurt you. Idols are deceptive. They, they promise you everything, and they promise to cost nothing, but really, in the end, in reality, they cost everything and give you nothing. Specifically, idols will control you, they'll crush you, and they'll fail you. Um, the idols of these Ephesians craftsmen, they had, these idols had incredible power over these guys. Their identities are staked on wealth, career, renown, and they are enraged in an instant. Uh, in the stadium, someone gets up to speak to try to quiet the crowd, and they drown him out with chanting for two hours. They are just chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine loving someone or something, or only someone, so much that you would get together, that we would get together and chant about it for two hours? Like, I'm trying to think what that would be in Baltimore if we went over to Raven, Raven Stadium. Like, the what? Lamar the what? Lamar Jackson. Oh, Lamar Jackson. Yeah, we could say Lamar Jackson. Yeah, Lamar Jackson. Great is Lamar Jackson. I was thinking, um, he like, great is Old Bay of Baltimore, you know? I don't know. <laughs> That's good too, though. I like that too. Man, if something in your life can make you instantly enraged, uh, can cause you to drop everything in a moment and stand in, in an instant ride and scream about its greatness for two hours, it has some control over you. If you try to take something good away from a healthy person, they, they could be sad. They could be a little mad. But if you try to take um, someone's ultimate thing away from a person, they will go ballistic why? Because it has ultimate power over them. They can't lose it. Whatever you love ultimately will have ultimate control over your life. But oh, I want you to say they can't deliver. Idols are empty promises. In reality, I want to show you they, idols will crush you. Listen to this author I mentioned earlier, David Foster Wallace. Remember, not a Christian um, or <clears throat> author. Listen to how he continues in his uh, commencement speech that I mentioned earlier. He says, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally Plant you. So he's saying, if you make beauty your God, it will crush you. It is merciless, unforgiving. Let me give you an example. Uh, when Jen and I got engaged, my, my wife and I got engaged, uh, I idolized marriage. The puzzle, the, like the last puzzle piece of my life was almost in place. I almost had, the circle of life was almost fulfilled. If I could have companionship with the woman I love, if I could be married, if we could have a life together, if I could have sex, then we would be, it's like the last thing, and then we're good. And I literally was like, I literally prayed this prayer, Jesus, please don't come back until after the honeymoon. I literally played that, I was serious, I was not kidding, I was serious. 
Why? Why did I long for the honeymoon more than I long for Jesus coming back? So I idolized marriage. I, I, wanted, I idolized it. And, and you know what happened when we got married? We got married. Um, companionship was great. Um, getting married was great. Waking up next to Jen is, Jen's awesome. But uh, you know what actually happened is I was disappointed. My new marriage could not stand up under the weight of my worship. I looked for Jen in our marriage to give me peace in every circumstance, comfort in every trial, joy no matter what was going on, meaning in every circumstance. And you know what? She couldn't do that. I couldn't do that for her either. And so I was disappointed. And what do you think disappointment, when someone really close to you, a close friend or a spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, if they're disappointed in your relationship, what does that do for your intimacy and your companionship and the safety of that relationship? It crushes it. And so the marriage that I idolized to give me everything, that idol was now eating alive and crushing the safety and companionship of my new marriage. It couldn't stand up under the weight of my worship. And I think there are lots of you here who who might be single, and it might be where I was too. There is this one missing piece of my life, and once it is put in place, all will be complete. All will be right in the world. I'll be good. And guys, that's a, that's a good desire, but, but when you idolize it, it cannot, it cannot be your ultimate hope. It will not fulfill, and it absolutely will crush your future relationship. And uh, can I just say this? Some of you, may, it may be that if you're idolizing that relationship, romantic relationship, future marriage, it may be God's grace that you don't have it right now. It may be God's grace that he's waiting for you to put him back on the throne and back as your main hope in your life. Because anything you make ultimate outside of God is going to give you the opposite of what it promises. And it will keep demanding more and more and more, and it's never satisfied, and it's unforgiving. And on top of failing you, or on top of crushing you, it will also fail you. It'll fail you because, uh, I think we know this, they don't really satisfy in the end. They don't really give you what I think you really think they will. We, we know this, right? If you look at people that have kind of achieved the, the top tier of some of the things we idolize, like you see that, right? You look at Olympic gold medalists that really struggle with, um, with depression after getting what they've been seeking after since they were eight years old. Uh, uh, you see the wealthy and famous that really struggle with really actually being happy. Uh, I got some friends reading a bio on uh, Elon Musk right now, and they've told me it's just... It's just sacrifice after sacrifice on the altar of SpaceX and Tesla, sacrificing joy and health and family again and again and again for financial success and business success. And they fail you because they can disappear in an instant. I want you to take a moment and think about maybe what do you value most right now? It could be a person, it could be a thing, an experience, a career. Like what, what, do you, what gives you deep, what, what do you value deeply right now? And I can guarantee you that thing, that reality, that person, I want you just to think about how quickly that can be changed, how quickly it could be taken away in an instant, right? I, um, I'm just spilling all my idols, but I, at least that I have or used to have. I used to idolize um, vocational ministry, just being a, a pastor, being a minister. And um, I took a break uh, in between ministry jobs. I was painting, I did a painting business, and I remember laying in bed one night and um, 
Jen still makes fun of me for this because I was so dramatic, so overly dramatic. But I, I just blurted out. I was working this painting job. I was a member at a great church, but not leaning anything. I was no one. No one really knew me. Um, and I remember just blurting out, like, "Who am I? What is my purpose? I don't even have a purpose anymore." I just blurted that out. I didn't, honestly don't even. I probably knew I wasn't supposed to say that, but I said it because as soon as this ministry vocational job was taken away, I, I felt like I had nothing. I felt like I had no purpose. I felt like I had no meaning. My joy was gone. And guys, anything we place our hope in like that can just be taken away so quick. Idols are empty promises. They, they promise you ultimate satisfaction, but they will fail you, and they will crush you every time. There's no exception. Every time. You might say, but how can I tell what I'm idolizing? Um, idols, they have a sneaky way of, of hiding, and, uh, and we even kind of protect our idol worship at times, right? That's why uh, abusive relationships get protected. That's why secret pornography struggles get protected sometimes, because uh, we like to hide or, or nurture even our idols. Uh, I want you to think about a few questions here that might help you identify an idol in your life, and um, I want you to bookmark it. I want you to keep it up here, because i got some homework for you later. Here's number one, though. We already touched on this a little bit. Do you have a time where your anger is disproportionate to the circumstances? The second one is, where do your thoughts effortlessly go in the slow moments of life? When you put your phone away, you're just sitting, thinking, where do your thoughts just effortlessly go? Number three what is so important to you that you cannot live without it? So really good questions to start thinking about what am I being tempted to idolize right now? What am I idolizing right now? And guys, it can be so easy to get in what I call the idol trap, that we have this pantheon of household gods in our life that we just that we keep sacrificing our presence to, our best time to, our money, our closest people or attention to. And we go from one, and then when that one fails us or doesn't satisfy or we feel it, maybe we'll go to the next one. And we'll just keep switching this kind of, to these household uh, worship of idols, thinking one might really satisfy. The next one will be different. Keep thinking, man, this, this circumstance, once the circumstances get better, once I accomplish this task, once I get to this stage of life, once I obtain this, then I'll be satisfied. But you know this, um, you'll just be perpetually unsatisfied. You'll just keep being thirsty. And many of you may feel trapped in this cycle right now. I, I'm looking to all this stuff to satisfy, and I, feel, I just feel thirsty. I just feel tired. And um, you feel like in that cycle. And you might think, how do I get out? How do you have your thirst really quenched? And that's number three. It's how we kill idols. How we kill idols. How do you escape the power of an idol in your life? Are you ready for the answer? Stop it. Okay, let's pray. Um, no, we don't just stop it. And I'm kind of joking, but I'm really serious a little bit. Um, a lot of times, that's what we do. Stop loving that thing. Stop idolizing things. Stop getting angry. Stop being depressed. Stop getting disappointed. Stop being hopeless. That's not the answer. That won't work. When you make something an idol of your heart, your affections are tied to it. Your desire is tied to it. You can't just switch that off. 
There's a famous sermon by a Scottish pastor, uh, uh, Thomas Chalmers. Listen to the title of this sermon. The title of the sermon is like a sermon in itself. It's, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is the title of this sermon. And this is what he says in the sermon. He says, The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. So he's saying, you need a new love. You need a better love. Remember how Demetrius, he recounted Paul's message, uh, started that whole no little disturbance thing? It says in almost, in verse 26, in almost all of Asia, Paul's persuaded and turned away so many people. These Ephesians, they're throwing away their statues. They're burning their magic books, we learned last week. They're turning the whole Ephesian economy upside down. How are they so persuaded to trash these really glorious, attractive things? And I think our text last week um, in chapter 19, verse 17, will really help us. This is what it says, what's going on, why they were persuaded. It says, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You probably haven't used the word extol this week. Extol means honor, praise, hold in high esteem, lift up. The Greek word is actually where we get the word mega, is kind of the base of the word. Jesus was being made mega in people's hearts. A magnifying glass was being put on Jesus, and the Ephesians' hearts were enthralled. The Ephesians, they held up their idols. They had their temple and their wealth and their careers and their fame their reputation, and they looked to Jesus, and then they just said, they just trashed everything else. Why? For the first time, they saw this clear fact that Jesus is so much better. Jesus is so much more mega compared to these idols. So the power to killing idols is not loving things in your life less, it's loving Jesus more. You might think, how do we do this? Do we just chant Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I mean, you could do that, but I think there's better ways to do this. I want to give you a few examples. We talked about the idol of wealth earlier, if you remember that. Why do we idolize wealth? We idolize wealth because we long for security, for comfort. And if we idolize wealth, though, there's never going to be enough in our bank account. We'll never be satisfied. We can never really rest, right? But then when you look to Jesus, we hold up Jesus against our idol. We remember this, that 1 Peter tells us that you already, Christian, have an inheritance that will never perish. You have an inheritance that will never spoil, a wealth that's kept in heaven for you right now, that's already been paid for. God who owns everything did not spare his most valued wealth, Jesus, already expended Jesus for your sake. Why would you not believe he would give you everything else? He's already given you the biggest gift. It says God became poor so we could be rich. And man, if we, if we really believe that, if we really see Jesus accomplishing that, we, we give away freely because the wealth is already ours and we can't lose it. What about the idol of reputation? You guys, um, if you've heard me you know, talk before, I, I struggle with this. You hold up the idol of reputation. We idolize reputation because we want to know we matter. We want affirmation. We want respect. We want love. That's not bad. That's not a bad desire. But, but when we idolize it, we can never say no to anyone. We never say the hard thing. 
and you're a wreck every time just a fickle person doesn't admire you deeply. But then against that idol, you hold up Jesus and what he's done. That at the cross, he switched places with you. What he did is he took your tarnished reputation and he actually gave you his own flawless reputation before the Father. That the holy God with the perfect standard looked at Jesus and said, look, this is my son who I'm proud of, who I delight in, who I love. And it says that God now, because of Christ, God speaks those same words over you, Christian. He delights in you. He's proud of you. He's your de- you're his delight. Man, so we don't get devastated if someone doesn't like us. We don't enslave ourselves to the opinions of others. We look at the Father and remember his words of approval. Let me do one more. Uh, the idol of comfort. Uh, we idolize comfort. Um, comfort just feels great. Comfort's great, right? You want peace, and you want rest in a world of chaos. So your peace is really fragile. Your rest is really fragile because conflict keeps happening uh, with your family. Cars keep breaking. Work keeps stressing you out. But what if we look to Jesus next to that comfort and look at the God who left his ultimate place of comfort to come into our chaos Jesus had secured your place of eternal comfort. And more than that, he actually gives you a peace that is bulletproof, gives you a rest that's bulletproof that says no circumstance, no conflict, no broken car, no, no like conflict at work can steal your peace, your rest. And not only that, when we believe that, we actually step into chaos. We don't idolize comfort, we step into chaos to comfort the broken, to comfort those in this city that have been mangled and hurt by the brokenness of this world and point them to the comfort of Jesus. Uh, guys, we could do this all day. I'm almost, like, I'm almost like, yo, shout out your idol. Let's do it. Like, so Jesus is better. Who's got one? Anybody bold enough? No. Well, <laughs> but seriously, we could do this all day. The idol of romance, Jesus is better. The idol of success, Jesus is better. The idol of security, Jesus is better. The idol of beauty and a Lord, Jesus is better. The idol of career, Jesus is better. I'm telling you guys, we could do this all day. So remember, you identified, hopefully through those questions, or you're working on identifying an idol that you are struggling with. Hopefully you even thought of a few, if you're like me. And I, guys, I want to give you some homework. I, I want you to reflect on how Jesus is better. I want you to go home. I want you to write it down. I want you to talk with someone. I want you to talk about it with someone in your stupid or your spouse to say, man, here's an idol I feel like I have uncovered. I've thought about. I am struggling with. Let's talk about how Jesus is better and have your heart recaptured by the beauty of the gospel. When we make Jesus mega, then we see how dull and drab and dumb our idols are next to him. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. My friends, he's saying, your, your idols are just mud pies, You are playing around in mud pies when Jesus has already offered and given you infinite wealth. 
Why would you mess with that stuff? Why would you make it? Why would you center your life on those things? So guys, I hope you've seen you're an idolater. I am too. I, but idolatry is a big deal to God. Uh, you remember the first commandment. It's about idolatry. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. So you and I are the, the covenant breakers. We're unfaithful to a faithful God. God hardwired us, created us to make him our ultimate treasure, and instead we've gone and made everything, including his good gifts, our ultimate treasure. And that's when we see the beauty of Jesus, because even in that, we, we really deserved abandonment and punishment, but even in that, Jesus stepped in on the cross to pay the punishment for the idolaters, to take the abandonment of the Father for the idolaters. We look at Jesus and who took our punishment, to make you his treasure. And it's only when you truly see Jesus dying for you to make you his treasure that you really can look at him and make him your treasure. Because idols will, I love this, idols, guys, remember we talked about this, will ask you to keep sacrificing everything to them. Give me everything. Sacrifice your uh, most important relationships, your community, your money. Keep sacrificing to me. But Jesus is a God who sacrificed everything to you. No one else, nothing else will do that. So non-Christian, if you're here, man, my invitation is that you would just, you would see the Savior. I just want to be upfront with you. Everything you think you'll find meaning and hope and purpose in it, it's going to fail you. It's going to crush you and it's going to fail you in the end. Would you run to Jesus today? He's better than anything else you're running at right now. And Christian, as we go to the table together, man, let's have our affections refocused on Jesus. Let's renounce our idols. We don't need to be embarrassed to say we have them. Let's just renounce them together. Let's make Jesus mega in our hearts and together, let's say Jesus is better. All right, let's pray. Father, yeah, we just come together to confess we're idolaters. I am. We take your gifts, the good things you've given us, and we try to make them our God. And um, God, show us the foolishness and just the leakiness of, of that, that we'll never be satisfied. You've made us for deeper desires, a more robust worship. And God, I, I pray for our church I pray we'd be constantly killing our idols. We'd constantly be renouncing our idols, not because we feel shame, not because uh, we just know we shouldn't do that stuff, but just because we are so affectionately desirous of Jesus, because our hearts are captured and recaptured and recaptured again and again by the person and work of Jesus. And God, I just pray against any shame and guilt in this room. Um, I love the story of the prodigal son who ran away after idols. He just wanted his dad's money. He just wanted his dad's gifts. And he came back shameful with his head, head low. But Father, you show us your heart and how you received him. You received him with delight and hugs and kisses. You ran to him. And so I pray against any shame that anyone in Christ is feeling right now. God, that they would come to you just being able to offer their idols, knowing they're come to a father that delights in them, that loves it when we come to you. And so would we come to you renouncing our idols confident coming to the throne of grace because of the payment that Jesus has made on our behalf. Um, God, man, would you just turn this city upside down like you did in Ephesus by a people that are renouncing idols and have something that are pointing people in the city to something so much better than anything um, 
that we could long for or state our identity in. God, we need you to do this. Would you do it today? In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.